Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So as Keith said, we are here in the first part of chapter 4 in 1 Timothy. And I, I want to, if, once again, if, if you're new with us today, uh, we're going through a, a book. It's really a letter. We call it a book in Scripture. But it's really a letter that has been written by the Apostle Paul um, to a young man, somewhere in his 20s, 25, 30, we don't know, somewhere. Uh, and Paul is getting, we believe, towards the end of his life here when he writes this letter. And he knows his time. I think he, he's aware that his time is short. Um, and he's probably going to be put to death at some point uh, by the government, by Rome. And, and so he's writing to Timothy, kind of like uh, passing the baton off to this young man to kind of care for the church, specifically in Ephesus, um, a, a city there with, uh, that was Greek in origin, but, but many um, were, were coming to know Christ there. And, and so he's, he's wanting the church to be healthy. Paul had been there for two years uh, a few, several years earlier and, and taught there and really tried to build up the church. And so he's handing the baton off. And so this letter is really to Timothy to, uh, as you saw in the last couple of weeks, if you've joined us, kind of the structure of the church. So uh, the roles of elders and pastors and deacons. And, and Paul's telling Timothy, this is, this is how the church should be structured and why and how the leadership. It's, it's very practical in some respects, very helpful. And today... When we get into chapter 4, um, he's going to say that there's, he's going to caution Timothy that there's some challenges ahead. And so he wants Timothy to be aware, and so, uh, and we're going to see that. But before we go there, I think that I want to go back and reread what Pastor Brian preached on last week. And, and the reason I do is because context in, in study and in messages and sermons is so important to, to understand why what is said in these verses is being said because something right before it is very important. And so I think for the context to, to really get it to understand where we're at, I think is really helpful. And so then I, there's something in the text that I'm going to read from last week that really has just been wrestling. I've been really not, I shouldn't say wrestling, but it's really impacted me and made an impact on me this week as I've been praying and, and meditating on, on the scripture this week. Uh, and I want to share that with you as well. But so we're going to step back a little bit. If you've got your Bible open, we're going to step back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 14 through 16. Once again, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So, what is Paul saying here? Paul is not there. He's hoping to come to Timothy soon and, and kind of help him. But he's saying, Timothy, don't make it. I want to make sure that you understand how that you should be behaving and how the saints, the believers, should be living in, in the household of God. But what really kind of has been on my heart and I think sets the tone for the rest of the message is when Paul says this. He says, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Brian did a great job last week of talking about the pillars of, of many of the, the temple of Artemis and, and these beautiful pillars uh, made of marble or stone, and, and, and they held up this great, you know, beautiful building. And, and Paul is saying that these pillars are vital. Not to hold up a building, to hold up the truth. And what I have come to, to appreciate and, and be felt the weight of this week is that the pillar, if you work backwards here, what is the pillar? It's the church of the living God. It's who's the church? You and me. So 
the church, you and I, are to hold up the truth of the gospel. We're the ones, we're the pillars that that Paul is telling Timothy, make sure that you're behaving in such a way in the church because you are the church of the living God. The Holy Spirit reigns in you, lives in you. And that you're holding up the truth of the gospel for God's glory, right? That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, what is the church? A pillar and buttress of the truth. We hold up the truth of scripture. How do you think the church is doing with that in America today? We're struggling. Churches, pillars, I I like to look at it this way. Unfortunately, pillars are crumbling. They're not holding up the truth of the word of God. We could talk a long time. I'll I'll reference that here in a little bit. But And and what Paul is recognizing is, is that, Timothy, this is so important. Now, because the pillars collapsed, does that mean the truth is not real? No. Jesus doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. But he's saying for the world to know, for for God to be exalted, for Jesus to get the glory and God to get the glory that he deserves, we should be holding this truth up. That's the purpose of the church. We We are witnesses. We are salt. We are ambassadors. And we hold up the truth of Scripture for all to see, for the world to see. And many in the Christian culture today, we don't want to hold that up because that attracts attention. And we don't want attention. We just want to live our lives quietly, meekly, and and without any fuss. And so what happens is, is that we move away from Scripture and we move away and the pillars begin to crumble and the, the impact of the church becomes marginalized and many times we end up with a body of people that are meeting but are no longer really the church at times. And so what Timothy is saying, or Paul is telling Timothy, is, Timothy, there's going to rise up in the church false teachers. People are going to move away from this truth. They're going to leave. They're not going to stay. They're going to be drawn away by deceitful spirits and and teachings of demons. They're going to do that, and they're going to leave. And what he's telling Timothy, first of all, be aware, Timothy, that this is going to happen. This is coming. And so what's your big idea for this morning? God warns us about false teaching in the church. God warns us. Paul here, we pick it up in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to spend 90% of our time in this one verse. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now I want to remind you once again that Around 54, 55 AD, um, Paul was in Ephesus and taught for like two years. And, act, and he calls, I think in like 56, he, he leaves Ephesus after a couple years of teaching. He leaves and travels around to Macedonia and, and then comes back and stops in a town called Miletus. And he calls the, the, the elders of the, the Ephesus church, the church at Ephesus, to him. And he wants to talk to them because he knows he may not see them again. And he warns them, this is years earlier before he writes this letter to Timothy, who's also in Ephesus. He warns them that that there will be fierce wolves that will come into the church or they'll be in the church. We see it in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 31. It says, I know that after my departure, this is Paul talking to to the elders here in Miletus, the elders of the church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. First part of the, the verse there, it says, the Spirit expressly says. So Paul's just letting Timothy know, Timothy, this is not my, this is not how I feel. The Spirit of the Lord is, is commu- telling me and communicating to us that this is what's going to happen in the church, that these are the things that are going to take place. This isn't just Paul's thoughts. This is what the Spirit of God is telling him. Now, we could say, well, is, is, is Paul getting special revelation? Well, all of Scripture is inspired by God. So the fact that it is written, we would say, yes, God is giving him this revelation of what is to be said. Is Paul also possibly thinking about what's already been said in the Old Testament about the false teachings? Maybe the words of Jesus that, that were, Jesus taught that there would be false teachers when he was alive. And so is Paul referencing back the Spirit, the Lord has said this will happen. 
The most important thing is that we know that this is coming from God. He's giving us a warning that there will be false teachers and false teaching in the church. It goes on there, it says, in later times, right? Later times, some will depart from the faith. So the question then is asked, well, what does it mean later times? Is, is Paul referencing to Timothy here that, Timothy, um, after I leave, in the next few years, that's going to happen, so you need to be aware? And the answer is, yes, that's what he's saying. Or is he saying, well, it could be that in 500 years there will be false teaching. Is that what he's saying? Yes, that's what he's saying. Is it possible that he's saying at the very end of age, when before Christ returns, will there be false teachings? And the answer is yes, there will be false teaching. So what does later times mean? It means from the time of the ascension, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, until Christ comes back, he is telling Timothy there's going to be false teaching in the church. There's going to be people that are going to try and distort the gospel and tear down the pillars that uphold the truth of the gospel. And I think when we look around our world today, that's, that's just that's obvious. It's just so true. I mean, just think about our nation for a second. I had dinner last night, um, well, at a, was at a wedding reception and talked to a wonderful families, been around the world and, and did different things and believers. And, and we just talked about kind of where we're at in the world. And, and we said, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, our culture, we, we believed in God. Now, not everybody was a believer, but I mean, we, we had reverence for God and authority and, and maybe we knew who God was. We didn't necessarily believe, but we knew God was who he says he was and we feared him at some level. Today, there's, we've moved away from that. People don't fear God. He's, he's just a thing to, that many people don't even believe. They don't even understand. They don't care. They don't even care to learn and feel that. And, and in that process, well, we've, we've removed God from many things in our culture. We've moved prayer of school. And, and I'm not here to talk about the separation of church and state. I'm just saying there's just been so many things. We've, we've authorized abortions. We've, we've killed millions of babies. We've... Um, you know, condone gay marriage. We're just moving. You don't think that's false teaching? You don't think that that's infiltrating the church? The, the pillars that Timothy has is, is been told here to, to behave and to hold upright the truth of the gospel are crumbling in our, in our nation. And so what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is, is that you've, you've got to train the church in such a way and be aware of this so that that doesn't happen, Timothy. But false teaching is, is only going to continue to increase. I think we can show from Scripture that as we move throughout history and we get closer to the time of, of the return of Christ, false teaching is only going to intensify. There's going to be a, a bigger turning away. And I'm, I'm not a, a theological historian, but, but I think we're in a major turning away. And So I think when we read this text, we should feel the weight of this in our time. Notice here in Acts 20 that it's, it's from among yourselves. He, he's saying there'll be people in the church, Timothy. You know, so much of the time we worry about what's going on in the culture and, you know, we, what's out there. And that's true. And we want to love people. We want to speak truth. But, but what Paul is really telling Timothy is that these will be people within the church. There'll be people in the church that will fall away and begin to bring false doctrines into the church. We're going to talk about how that impacts us here in a little bit. So latter times or later times from the resurrection until Christ's return. Here's where we're going to spend most of our time. It goes on there to say some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. What does it mean to depart from the faith? I think the first question is if you're, a, um, if you're thinking through this a little bit is you're saying, well, can someone depart from the faith? Because here at the church, we think Scripture clearly teaches that once we become born again, once we become um, a new creation in Christ, we can never lose that. We can never lose that. God has done something in us that, that is His. He holds us. He, he keeps us. So how can someone depart from the faith? Can they walk away from the faith? Is, does it mean that they're still a believer but live, living in sin? I think a, a better way to look at this passage is that there are people that profess the faith, but now have walked away. 
but they were never truly born again. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, one, we can see it very intimately in Judas Iscariot. He walked with Jesus for three years and lived with him and saw the miracles and and saw all the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead and healing the lame, and and yet at the end walked away and totally denied Christ and, and betrayed him. Was Judas a born-again believer and then left his faith? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was ever there. We see that in, in lots of places in Scripture, that, that people are following Jesus, but, but they're really, for their own selfish purposes, are following him. Maybe they want to see really cool miracles, or they want to, they want to see something that he does. They, they want to be fed. We see that a lot of times. In fact, Jesus says, hey, look, unless you hate your father and yes, your own children and pick up your cross and follow after me, you can't be my disciple. And a bunch of them leave. Because he says, look, you're not following me. You don't want me. You want you want, a, you want something for yourself. You're here to get something from me. You don't really love me. And I think this is when he says some will depart from the faith. These are people that are professing things. And, and I'll just be real candid with you. I think the church in America is filled with people like that. I hope that is not true in our church, this church. But I'm sure that some of, some of us are. Now, maybe you're you're coming, and, and we pray the Lord is going to open your heart and reveal himself to you, and someday you'll be found in Christ, you'll become born again. But, but just remember, attending church, attending this service doesn't save you, only being radically transformed by the Spirit and being born again will save you. And so I think Paul is just telling him something that's going to be true for Timothy's time and all of our time. 1 John talks about this. The gospel writer, John, he's, he's writing to the church and he's trying to help them understand um, what it means to be saved. They read questions about, am I saved? Am I not saved? And, and who's saved? And how do I know I'm saved? And so 1 John is just a great little letter that we read in, in a book that I study a lot. Lots of great passages in it. We're going to quote a few of them today. But one of the places John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, kind of addressing this issue of people not staying with Christ not, and abandoning the faith. This is kind of a tongue twister, but so hopefully I can get this out. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. What's he saying? People have been coming and hanging out with us because they they like the fellowship, they're, they're, they're thinking about following Jesus, but at some point the rubber meets the road and they decide to go someplace else. They they don't stay with us. Where else do we see this? We see this in the parable of the sower, right? Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. They sow the seed. And what happens? Some places it springs up immediately, but it doesn't take deep root. And the pressures of the world come and and temptation comes and they leave out. They die. You could make an argument that that's kind of what's happening here. Some people are following along and and you're, you're intrigued by Christianity. You're intrigued by this thing called the church. And we go and they sing and they read ancient scripture and they talk about God and eternity and I'm, I'm interested in that. But, but some level when, when, when Christ comes and says, now I, I want you to surrender your life to me. I, I, I want you to be mine. I'm, I'm gonna take you as mine and, and I want you to love me is that we then back away and say, no, I don't want that. I want, I want to control my own life. And they, they leave, and that's what John is saying. They, they were never part of us. Now, a, a different way of looking at this, and, and really what I think Paul is wanting in the church, is found in Colossians chapter 1, 23. He's, he's writing to the church there, and he says this. He says, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Here is a picture of those that are enduring and staying with the faith. We see that all through Scripture, Paul talks about finishing the race. Even in suffering, being steadfast, faithful, right? Holding tight to the truth of Scripture. Even in the face of adversity, 
even in the face potentially of death and, and persecution. We see that demonstrated by Jesus. And so here we see what does it mean then to abandon the faith? I think the best way that I would describe it, think what Paul's talking about is, is abandoning the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Now, we always want to talk about false teachers, and we say, well, what does it mean to be a false teacher? That, that's, uh, some things are clear. Like, so we believe in believer's baptism. I have friends that believe in infant baptism. We have some of you probably believe in infant baptism. Maybe we're raised in a church that did infant baptism or, or baptisms by sprinkling. And Is that false teaching? No, I'd say that's a different way of kind of looking at Scripture. We're debating those things. You may be here today and you think that there's going to be a rapture and, and that God's going to come and a bunch of people are going to, the church is going to be lifted up and be out of here. And then years later, God's going to come again and Jesus is going to go down on the Mount of Olives and, and there's going to be judgment and all of that. And and some of you believe that, and that's great. Some, of us, some people believe that that's not going to happen. This is going to be the end, right? And so there's different views. There's multiple different views on the end times. Okay, is there false teaching there? I don't think there's any desire to, to, to taint the gospel or to lead people astray. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't classify that as false teaching. That's where we kind of put our circle. A few weeks ago, we talked about elders and, and the role of deacons, specifically the role of deacons, and whether a woman can be a deacon or not. And, and that's kind of where we put a circle. I, I, don't, I wouldn't argue that that's false teaching. However, if you said, I don't believe Jesus was God, that's false teaching. Paul says, actually, that if you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh as God, then you are of the Antichrist. He says that in 1 John. That's false teaching. And so false teaching... Are, is abandoning the essential beliefs of Christianity. And that's really what I think Paul is, is trying to get across to Timothy, that this is what you need to be aware of, Timothy. And so here's what I've decided to do today. I am going to list uh, nine different things that I think are um, pictures of essential Christianity. And this is not a comprehensive list. This is just uh, a list that I can cover in the time that we have today. Uh, some of this is based in history, based in how the church has uh, forged and, and looked at Scripture and kind of forged these principles. Um, and so I just want to kind of share these with you, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. First one, essential belief in, in the Christian faith is the existence or the truth of the Trinity. The Trinity. Um, one God in three persons. And we could spend the whole message today on that. Uh, I'm not going to do that. It's one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not in Scripture, but, but the, the picture of Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are clearly displayed in Scripture. All the way back into Genesis, when God says, let us make, God, make man in our image, there's a plurality in the Godhead that is a bit of a mystery to say, you know, to say for sure. But we believe that God the Father, God the Son are all one God, but represented in three people or persons. Number two, the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. What does it mean, the deity of Christ? That Jesus was God in the flesh. That, that, that he became a man. That Jesus really took on flesh. Uh, for Gospel of John says that he, he became, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent is really the, the actual language there. He pitched his tent among us. God in the flesh became one of us. He was truly God and truly man. He said, well, okay, well, who doesn't believe that? that, that you know, well, think about the, the teaching there. All of two uh, of the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, only one believes that Jesus was really God in the flesh. Islam does not believe that. In fact, they think that's sacrilegious, that God would never take on flesh. The Jews obviously believe that he was a great teacher, but not the Messiah, not God in the flesh. But it is an essential teaching. The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We say the Word is Jesus here. It's a capital. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is clearly saying that Jesus is God in the flesh, taking on flesh. 
So the Trinity, the deity of Christ. Number three, Jesus was without sin. Jesus was without sin. We, several months ago, we studied the book of Hebrews, and the whole book of Hebrews was about this, the sacrifice that was needed and that was portrayed all throughout history, all the way from Genesis and the first death that, that God killed the first animal and made them coats of skin, uh, all the way through all the sacrificial systems, all the way up through the temple sacrifices. And what do we see is that Jesus was the sinless lamb of God, the perfect offering. Why is it important that he was sinless? Because scripture says that death comes because of sin. Judgment comes because of sin. And if God is going to, if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be spared the, the, the wrath of God, the judgment of sin, somebody has to die in our place that doesn't deserve it. And so if, if Jesus sinned, then he would be dying for himself. He would have to die for his own sin. And he comes and he never sins. He's sinless. And so he is the perfect sacrifice. That's what Hebrews talks about. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, we see that that's why it's, it's demonstrated by the by the perfect unblemished lamb because it's signifying that Jesus, the Messiah, will come and they will be, he will be sinless. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. In fact, through the gospel of John that we studied, what do we see? Jesus all the time says, I only do what my father wants me to do. I want to obey my Father in all things. I will even go to the cross and die because that's what my Father wants and that's what will bring him glory and that's what I want to do. He was sinless. Number four, Jesus was physically resurrected. Bodily, physically, however you want to phrase that. Jesus was physically resurrected in the flesh, raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. We just, we just covered Easter just a few a month or so ago and is alive today. And I said this on Easter, the, the physical resurrection of Christ is foundational to the Christian faith, right? If Christ has not been raised, we see this in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in fifteen fourteen, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, there's no point for us to gather here this morning. And yet, there are churches in America, that don't talk about that. They don't talk about the resurrection. I'm not even sure that some of them believe in the resurrection. But they are gathering to talk about good things and that God is love and all of these things. But the core foundations of the gospel of the Christian faith are left out. And so, if false teaching has been around this whole time, and we've been wrestling for the essentials of the Christian faith to hang on to. If we looked back in Scripture, could we look back in history, could we see that? And so we can all the way go back to in the early first two, three centuries. There was councils that, of believers that would meet, and, and certain people would have a, a view of Scripture, and it would be heresy. It would not line up with Scripture. And so there would be meetings, and, and people would be labeled heretics and, and kind of outcasted because they were trying to protect the Scripture, trying to protect they were trying to be pillars of holding up the truth of Scripture, the truth of who Christ is. And, and people were attacking that, and they stood firm in that. And we, we see all through history, and we get up to around 1500. We see the Roman Catholic Church is, has, has really moved away from what the Scripture says. And, and I won't get into all of the things, but there's just a lot of teaching that doesn't line up with Scripture. And so a group of men in, in Europe um, began to, to wrestle with, and specifically um, Martin Luther, and, and began to, to study, and he was a, as a, a monk, and he, he said, no, this is not true. This, 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 this is not in Scripture. And he writes these things called 95 Theses. And, and it's just these things that say, this is not true about the Catholic faith. This is the Roman Catholic faith. This, this is not. And so what happened was what was called a Reformation, and they said, we need to reform the church. Luther didn't want to break away. He wanted to just reform the Catholic church. He was trying to point out the error of their teaching. He, he wanted the best, and, and they refused. I would encourage you to study that. Read the history. And so Luther then, basically what happens is, is there's a whole, we're here today as a, as a Southern Baptist church because of the, what's called the Protestant Reformation. 
Over 500 years ago, people came and said, no, this is not true. There's, there's false teaching, and we need to go back to the Scripture. And so we had a Protestant Reformation, and they, they leave. And as they're wrestling to, to regain the truth of Scripture, they get together, and basically Reform Movement comes up with five primary what I would say pillars for the church of theology and our belief system, and they're called the five solas, right? The five solas. And, and maybe you've heard of them, and, and they have Latin terms, uh, sola scriptura, right? Um, sola fide, all of these things. And I'm, I'm not going to go into all the Latin for you, but, but I'm going to go through these real quick. These are the five things that the, that the reformers at the time said, when we look at scripture, these are the, the pinnacles, these are the foundational pillars of the church and of the doctrine that we need to believe. The first one, by Scripture alone. By Scripture alone. In the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't just by Scripture. It was by tradition. It was by edict from the Pope or, or other people. Uh, a lot of it was tradition that things that were to happen and things that were happening, but none of it was in Scripture. And the Reformers said, no, we, we, can't, we can't have anything, any belief structure that is outside of Scripture. God has given us his word. It is holy. It is right. We, we, just, just before we started the First Timothy study here about uh, three months ago, we went through and we talked about that, that Scripture is inerrant. It, it is sufficient. It, it is all of those things. In fact, First Timothy or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, that's just a, such a powerful passage. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting me, for training me in righteousness, and it's all breathed out by God. It's, it's God-given. And yet, churches are turning away from the Word of God. And I, I know for some of you, if, if, especially if you've been here a long time, maybe you're thinking, no, that can't be true. I can't tell you. Right now, there's a membership class going on. I think about 15, 20 people back there in membership. And over the last three, four years, you know what the number one thing we hear from people that take our membership class? We can't find a church that actually preaches out of the Word of God anymore. I mean, does that shock you? That should. That should, that should just sadden you. That, that, that false teaching has crept in to the church so badly that, that the pillars are just crumbling. They're, they're not even being upheld. We're caving to all sorts of things. And so the reformers basically saw that 500 years ago, and they said, no, we're so off base. We've got to get back to Scripture. And many, many in the church today say that we need another reformation. We need to get back to the Scripture again. We've moved away from it. The second one, second sola, through Christ alone. What do we see in Scripture? We see Christ exalted. We see the sacrificial lamb being put forth. And what does the scripture say? That it is through him alone. That there are not a bunch of ways to heaven. That it is through Christ alone. Pastor Brian last week talked about uh, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. But yet today, if we were to make that statement, oh, that's so controversial. Even, believe it or not, even some people in the church think that that's controversial. I think I shared with you maybe a few weeks ago um, that I, I met with a, a young man after service one day back in the pastor's corner, and, and he professes to be a believer, and, and I, I started talking about this, and, and I said, no, there's, there's not, Christ is the only way. And he looked at me like, oh, no, that's, I, have, I have friends that don't believe. I said, well, then they're not going to heaven. Wow. I'm like, he, the church is not paying attention. We, we, we've, we started, we've started to gather in, in America, in the church, in the Western church, and, and we've, we've gathered for fellowship. We gather to hear good stories. We gather to laugh. We gather for great concerts. We gather for all sorts of things. But what we don't gather for is being confronted by the word of God and our own sin to realize we need a savior. That's not what people want to hear. And as pastors, we don't want to tell people that because we want 
we, we struggle with sin. We want larger churches. We don't want to put anybody off. We don't want to have to, to say, no, this, this is the hard truth. We want to love people. Well, yes, we should love people. Absolutely, we should love people. But the best way to love people is to tell them the truth because their, their soul is hanging in the balance. That's what we need to tell them. That's why that, that what, what Paul is telling Timothy is this. How you behave, how you hold up the truth of the gospel is going to radically determine who sees it, who hears it. And you must proclaim it and protect it, Timothy. Acts chapter 12, or verse, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one, no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved, except Jesus. It is in Christ alone. And, and, and I know... You know, we sing the song, In Christ Alone. It's a powerful song. But even as believers, I sometimes wonder, do we believe that? Because if we did, we should be telling people that. But yet we have friends that don't believe that and we don't tell them because somewhere in our head, we think, well, maybe God will. That's not what the scripture says. And if we love them, why wouldn't we tell them? Lovingly, graciously, yes. I mean, who wouldn't want to know that the God of the universe became a man and died for them so that they could be forgiven of their sin and judgment and be given eternal life forever? Why do we not want to tell people that? We have been given the greatest news ever. I will make a guess and stab at it is because we know that even though that news is so wonderful, we know that people don't want to hear it. Why is that? Because they love their sin and they don't want anybody to have authority over them. They don't. The scripture is offensive. It tells me I'm a sinner. I don't want to know that. I want to live how I want to live. And so when we bring that message and we tell them we're a sinner, they, they don't want to hear that. But they need to hear that. And we need to trust that the Spirit of the Lord will speak to their heart and give them a heart of flesh and transform them and cause them to be born again because they've heard the truth of Scripture. But see, the pillars, the church is crumbling in many places. And we're not holding that truth up any longer. Scripture alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. By faith alone. We must believe. We must have faith that God is who he says he is. We must believe the scriptures. We must trust the scriptures. We must believe and, and believe that we're a sinful, sinful, sinful person and that Christ died on the cross, that he was sinless, that he was resurrected from the dead. We must believe and have faith in that. And the, the beautiful thing I love about Christianity is that, that God doesn't call us to Christianity and say, oh yeah, I'm just gonna give you some way out story here and it won't make any sense and there won't be any evidence to it, but you just need to believe that. No, but every other religion is basically that way. And I'm just being honest here. Are there bits in, of truth in all things? Yes. Christianity comes and says there's history. There's over thousands of years of, of historical evidence that this is true. There's eyewitness testimony. There's prophetic things. There's 35 authors over thousands of years that have wrote a book that comes together and clearly paints the picture of, of God's story and, and his redemption and creation. It's all there. And yet we can go to something like Hinduism and it's a bunch of stories. We can go to Mormonism and somebody made this up some 200 years ago and, and wrote a book that no one else has been able to see. And then people get to come along and add to it that are prophets. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's just foundational. We must believe. Number four, by grace alone. By grace alone. So not only in Scripture alone, that's where we find the truths. And what do we find in Scripture alone? We find Christ, and, and him alone is the one that saves us. Him the, he, he alone is the one that can, can bring healing and, and forgiveness through his death and resurrection and his sacrifice. We must believe on that truth 
And what is that truth then? Is that God is graciously giving us something we do not deserve. That's what grace is, getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And we are all in God's mercy every day. We do not get what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve death and judgment. We have sinned against a holy God, and he is the creator, and, and he gives us mercy. That's why Scripture says his mercies are new every day. We are in his mercy every day. He is tearing. He wants no one to perish. He wants people to come. He's given opportunities for us to come. He's given us grace. He's saying, look, if you come, I will give you something you don't deserve, and you will have eternal life. I will forgive you. My son will die in your place. I will give you that. But it is not anything you've done to deserve that. Paul says in Romans eleven six, 6, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love that profound statement. If it were by works, then it wouldn't be called grace. It's that simple. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, right? We are saved, right? By grace through faith, not by works. So no one can boast. It's a gift of God. By grace alone. And see, why are all these things so important in the sense of that they're alone? In other words, it's Scripture alone. Well, who gave us Scripture? God did. Through Christ alone. Who gave us Christ? God did. Who gives us something to believe in and makes this possible? God does. Faith. Who gives us grace, unconditional love? God does. And this really sets up the fifth one. It is for God's glory alone. We've done nothing to deserve anything good from God. And that's because it's all about him getting glory for himself. There, there is some foundational truths that I've really come to simple truths as I talk to people that, that, that I think are so important for me and, and that and in my head that help me really um, humble myself before the Lord and, and I think it's just important for us as a church to truly come to grips with that, that, that I think are really simple, but I think they're so profound. I've said these before, but, but the first one is obviously that God is the creator of all things and we are not. God is the creator and he's created life. He's created you. And we're the creature. He can do whatever it is he wants to do. Now it says he cannot sin because he's holy. But if he says that he wants us to live a certain way, that's his right. Who are we to talk back to him and say, no, you, you can't ask that of me? He said, I made you. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm allowing you to live and giving you mercy because you're rebelling against me every day. What do you mean I can't ask that of you? He gives me the right not to do it, but then the just thing is he can judge me for it forever. And, and we don't want to yield to that. We want, the creature wants to be the creator. It's, it's Romans 1. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's Romans 1. When we believe, we, 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 we move away from the lie, and we, we, we say, no, God is not who he says he is. We want to, be the, we want to worship ourselves. We don't want to worship him. That's the problem. That goes all the way back to the garden. What did, what did the serpent, actually goes all the way back pre-garden. The serpent, before the serpent, when it was Lucifer in, in heaven, the angel, he basically said, look, I want glory. I want to be like you. I want to be over you. I want that. And he is cast down along with a third of the angels. And then what do we see? He comes to the garden and he wants to deceive the created thing that God has made for his glory. We're image bearers, right? And so we're going to bear the image of Christ. We're going to bear the image of God, this beautiful image to the world. God is going to get glory for that. And what does the serpent want to do? He wants to tear down the image. He wants to knock the pillars down. He doesn't want Christ to be exalted in any way. You know, the, um, and I'm not recommending this. You know, all parents need to be very thoughtful before you go see a movie or anything like that. But there is a movie out that we went to see uh, last week called Nefarious. Um, 
put together by a Christian group. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was very profound. Um, the whole movie basically takes place in a prison in an interview. Uh, basically, a man who's committed several murders, uh, and a, he's up for the death penalty, and a psychiatrist comes in and has to sign off that he is sane and, and you know, uh, to be able to be put to death, and he's not crazy. About an hour and a half conversation between the, the, the inmate and the psychiatrist. The interesting thing is that the inmate is possessed by a demon and begins to have a conversation with the psychiatrist. And it is, it is quite intriguing. We have no idea, and it's, you know, I think we have to be careful of making too much of, of uh, spiritual things, uh, spiritual warfare, and, you know, there's a demon under every rock and under everything. That, that's not right. That's, that's giving Satan way too much credit. But the fact is most in the church have stuck their head in the sand about spiritual warfare and what really is happening in the world. And this movie kind of draws that out. And basically the demon says, look, our job is to just tear down the church. Our job is to tear down believers because God gets glory for that and we're going to tear that down. And we've been very successful. And when we look around the world, we say, yeah, he's, in that sense, there's success there. Because it's all for God's glory and, and the enemy does not want God to receive glory. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. He's worthy. No matter what we're doing, it should be for God's glory. How we live, how we, how we behave, what we eat, what we drink, everything. How we raise our children, how we live out our marriage, how we work in our job, how we worship. It's all for his glory. It is not for us. In fact, the challenge in the church today is that the church has become a, too much about us. It's become about all the luxuries and all the entertainment and all the things. And I'm not saying some of those things aren't great. Look, we have a wonderful band, and, and I'm so thrilled. I, I mean, I'm so blessed. But we have to remember that this is all for him. Our, our, our goal is to make much of him. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It's not about us. Last part of verse 1. Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. There's a lot of, you know, what, what does that mean? That they devoted themselves to the deceitful spirits and, and the teachings of demons. I, I think I would like to, I, I think want to demystify this a little bit. Um, Willfully sinning and thinking it's okay is being deceived by spirits. The teachings of demons is about rebellion and believing lies. And so it, it's not something uh, mystical here. This is basically what he's saying is, is people are going to turn to themselves. They're going to become lovers of self. That, that's, that's the whole point of the teachings of demons. It's selfishness. It's it's exalting yourself above God. That's, that's the whole purpose here. That's what, that's what the serpent did in the garden. It basically told Adam and Eve, you can be like him. You don't need him. And that's been the, the challenge for us ever since. Scripture says that, you know, Satan comes as an angel of light. It's, it's not this, this horrific thing that we see. That's why we're so pulled into all of these things in the entertainment world and, and all of these things that are just taking us down a very dark road because on the surface, they don't seem like they're harmful, but really when you start to really look at them, you can see that they are leading us in a very, very dark path. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Again, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's a spiritual warfare that's taking place. 
And when we look around the country and you look around the world today, how can we not see that? I think Jesus sums it up in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 pretty well. Verses 22 and 23, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect be on guard. I have told you all of these things beforehand. Basically, Paul just repeats that. I've told you, be on guard, Timothy. This is coming. This is what's going to happen. It's, it's going to be the state until Christ returns, there's going to be a deception. And we kind of back up and say, okay, well, where are we at? Where do we see that kind of thing in our world? These are just a few, just a few false teachings about Jesus and about the Christian faith. Now think how significant these are. Some people teach works-based salvation. So you have to do works to be justified. Not justified by grace alone, but do works. And so well, who believes that? Well, Mormons believe that. And there's a lot of other things that they're not biblical at and their understanding of Jesus is not correct, but, but they believe that you have to do good works. The Roman Catholic Church, and maybe some of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in faith, grace, but they believe it also has to do with works. That's why there's um, the way they're structured the way they are and, and the way there's penance over these things and over works that you shouldn't do and, and sin. So it's a false teaching, I believe. Jesus is not truly God. Okay, I mentioned that earlier. Who believes that? Well, Jews believe that, that he's not really God. He believes a good teacher. Islam, which is a huge um, swath of the world, believes that there's no way God would take on flesh. That would be horrific, and God wouldn't do that. And so that's a false teaching. Jesus is the only way, or Jesus is only one of many ways. What is that called? It's called pluralism. That all roads kind of lead to heaven, and you just do your thing, I'll do my thing. And, and yeah, it's, it's offensive for me to tell you that your way's not right, so all roads kind of go there, and, and that's very prevalent in our world today. God will save everyone. It's called uh, Unitarianism. It's, it's everybody believes, or universalism. It's, it's everybody believes. We, had a, we advertised a man 15, 16 years ago, 17 years ago, maybe, I don't know. And uh, I got to know him pretty well. I thought he was a born-again believer, and um, he moved away. And years later, I connected with him, and he's in a universalist church. He believes everybody in the world goes to heaven. God has died for everybody, and everybody gets to go to heaven. I would say he's one of those people that Scripture says he made a profession but was really never born again. Prosperity gospel. I don't know what you want me to say about that one. I think you should all see that one for what it is. It's, it's, it's preying on people. It's preying to our, our desires to have things, to feel that God owes us things. It's a false teaching. Extreme experimentalism. Uh, this you see in, in more extreme parts of the charismatic church. It's all about emotions. It's all about feelings. And it's, it's not necessarily about the scripture. It's all about having an experience Look, God moves us clearly, and I get emotional at times, but when it becomes more about that than about who he is is the problem. It becomes about us, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that, that when that kind of thing turns about us, it, it takes the glory off of God. It, it becomes, we become the thing that everybody's looking at. We have a special thing that we have that no one else has. Evolution. People evolved from animals, from primordial soup. That teaching's been out there for years, and it's totally destroying our foundation of our culture. It's in every school, except for maybe a Christian school. It's in colleges and even some Christian realms and some seminaries, to be honest with you. Multiple genders. We've moved away that God has created the male and female. How does that, I mean, think about where that's at. Look, and, and I, I, have, I have great compassion for people who struggle with their sexual identity and, and that are struggling in, in the world. And, and I, yeah, I, I get that. Just, just like I struggle with people that have all sorts of other issues and their own sin issues. I have s struggles and sin issues. But, but to, to say that all of a sudden we're going to rewrite biology, we're going to rewrite the foundations of the earth and say none of that is true. 
And yet it is everywhere now in our culture, immediately. You don't think the pillars are crumbling? Abortion is not murder, it's okay. In fact, now it's not only okay, but in some people's eyes, all the way up until birth, and some maybe even after birth. I mean, there are churches that support these things. I mean, this is, this is not just some secular world that's supporting these things. Homosexuality is not a sin. Look, sex outside of marriage is a sin, whether it's homosexual or not. But now we have whole groups of churches that are saying no. I mean, the Methodist church is splitting over this. <laughs> and they're not the only one. I could lift you eight or nine denominations that have split or that have not just split, but then went that way. The pillars are crumbling. And you wonder why Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted? Because the world is not going to embrace the truth of Scripture. Wide road leads to destruction. Narrow road leads to life. All right. That's the end of verse 1. We're just going to quickly go through here these next couple verses, and we could spend more time on these, but we don't have time this morning. But notice what it says there. They've devoted themselves to the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So what's he saying here? He's saying there's people that are going to be lying and deceiving. That This isn't coming, the, the spiritual work is coming through people. It, this isn't, there's, there's people in the church, there's people from outside the church that are, that are following these teachings, that are lying, and their consciences are seared. What does it mean that your conscience is seared, right? It, it means that you've been, generally, it's this situation where you've been living in sin, you want what you want, and you, you've been there so long, you've rejected the truth, and so God says, okay, you're, you're so far rejecting me, I'm going to just turn you over and let you go. And, and there's this callousness that's happened. That, that word seared is this idea of cauterizing in Scripture. It means to like burn something and put a scar on it so that it is, it's tough. It can't be undone. In fact, in the Scripture here in the text, really what he's referring to, we believe, is that they, in, the, in the New Testament there, sometimes they would brand prisoners on their forehead with, with an iron to, to brand them, to cauterize something, to give them scar tissue so they would put a mark on them. And what he's saying is, is that sometimes our consciences are so seared, it's like that. We've been marked, we've been branded. As, we just don't believe, and we've just rejected it. Romans 1 lays that out. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, it says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, what's the ignorance due to? It's not that they can't understand, okay? It's not that they don't have the, not, the ability to understand. But look at the next line. Due to their hardness of heart. The reason that they're ignorant of the truth is because their hearts are hard. They don't want to receive the truth. Their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We don't want to put ourselves under Scripture because it tells us that we can't do what we want to do. He says in verse 3, here I think he's referring to things that were happening in Timothy's time so Timothy could understand. These are examples of some of the false teachings that were in Timothy's time. It says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So here we, we don't know for sure, but we, we can clearly see that the, the Jews of that time, there was foods that were unclean. And yet in Acts chapter 10, we see that God appears to Paul and basically says, Paul, in Christ, everything's clean. Everything I've made is good. You can eat all things now. And, and so Paul begins to teach that and, and help people understand that we don't, we don't have to be for, forbidden to eat that or to eat this. Everything is good. 
There's also at this time a, a belief of what's called a Gnosticism, which there's multiple kind of pieces of Gnosticism, but one of them that they believed that, that the spirit was good and the flesh was bad. Material things were bad. And so marrying was not good, eating certain foods. And if you abstain from those things, what you're really doing is you're playing God over people. And you're saying, no, you have to do this and you have to do this. And then if we do this, then God will owe us these things. And that's, that's not a good belief. And so there was teachers that were beginning to teach those things in these cultures. And what, what Paul is telling them is that, look, God has declared all those things to be good. Marriage is good. Food is good. God has created it. And as long as you receive it with thanksgiving, it is good. And so we here we find ourselves in the last two verses in 4 and 5. It says, for everything God created, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I just want to put one caveat on that. Because I've heard some people talk about this. Says, well, then I can, everything created by God is good. That means I can smoke pot and it's good. That's where people go sometimes. And I just want to be real clear. What he's talking about here is food and marriage. As well as, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but as well as he's saying that, that not it's good because God has created it for his purposes, but not all things are good for us. Like there, there are, if you have a peanut allergy, you should not eat peanuts. There are mushrooms out there that will kill you if you eat them. Are they good? Yes, because they've been created for God, for his purposes, providentially for his purposes in all of creation. Rhubarb, I think you can't eat the leaves. It's poisonous. So you shouldn't eat it. So not all things are good. So don't use that passage to... to to condone sinful behavior because you say, well, everything made by God is good as long as I receive it with thanksgiving. No, specifically talking about things that God has called clean and good and that we should receive them. And so once again, people are lying to them and telling them that they shouldn't eat these things or they shouldn't marry. And Paul is just countering that and telling Timothy, Timothy, this is how you need to treat these things in your time. But there's all sorts of other false teachings that he's not referencing here that, that, are, that are continuing to move throughout history, and we would expect false teaching to be only greater at the end, closer to Jesus' return, and that is what we see. So what's your takeaway? What is your takeaway? The best way to guard against false teaching is to know and believe the Scriptures. The best way to stand as a pillar and to not crumble is to know and believe the scriptures. To, to, to be in church, to, to be sitting under the teaching of the word, to be studying your Bible, to be rooted in it. I, I, I think some of you know that I have a, Terry and I have a strawberry patch, like 75 plants, and, and, um, and I was out pulling some, just a few weeds, and, and there's, I don't know if you guys ever pulled dandelions, but that taproot to that thing, I mean, it was soft as muddy. I had my hand, you know, three inches down in the dirt, and I could not pull that thing. And all I could think about was sin. Sometimes uprooting sin in our life is just so hard, right? I just, and you need a tool to get down in there, and, and I finally got frustrated and walked away. I didn't even get the tool out. You know what the tool is for our sin? God's word. And, and it will root it out. It may be a little uncomfortable, but it will root it out. Because what Paul tells Timothy, how you behave, we are the, we are the, the living church of God. The church is the pillars and the buttresses that are holding up the truth of the gospel for his glory. Let us not crumble. Let us remain faithful and stand firm. Let us love people deeply who don't know him. Let us be witnesses and light, but let us not shy away from the truth of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I, first and foremost, I praise you for who you are. 
that you give us mercy every day. Because every day, we are rebellious at some level in our heart. And Father, we praise you for the grace that you make available through your Son, for the forgiveness the, that you justify us even when we don't deserve it. You make us right and you give us a righteousness not of our own. Father, may that humble us and drop us to our knees. We don't deserve that. So Lord, help us to celebrate and praise you for it. You alone are worthy of our praise. But Father, specifically, as we look at how Paul is telling Timothy that the church should be the pillars and the buttresses that hold up your name, your gospel, your truth, your glory. Help us to stand. Help us to stand for you lovingly, but boldly. Help us to be rooted in your scripture. And Lord, help us to do it all for your glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. May you be glorified in all that we've done today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.